chapter twenty two of the birth of tragedy by friedrich nietzsche this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter twenty two let the attentive friend picture to himself purely and simply according to his experiences the effect of a true musical tragedy i think i have so portrayed the phenomenon of this effect in both its phases that he will now be able to interpret his own experiences for he will recollect that with regard to the myth which passed before him he felt himself exalted to a kind of omniscience as if his visual faculty were no longer merely a surface faculty but capable of penetrating into the interior and as if he now saw before him with the aid of music the ebullitions of the will the conflict of motives and the swelling stream of the passions almost sensibly visible like a plenitude of actively moving lines and figures and could thereby dip into the most tender secrets of unconscious emotions while he thus becomes conscious of the highest exaltation of his instincts for conspicuousness and transfiguration he nevertheless feels with equal definiteness that this long series of apollonian artistic effects still does not generate the blissful continuance in willless contemplation which the plasticist and the epic poet that is to say the strictly apollonian artists produce in him by their artistic productions to wit the justification of the world of the individuatio attained in this contemplation which is the object and essence of apollonian art he beholds the transfigured world of the stage and nevertheless denies it he sees before him the tragic hero in epic clearness and beauty and nevertheless delights in his annihilation he comprehends the incidents of the scene in all their details and yet loves to flee into the incomprehensible he feels the actions of the hero to be justified and is nevertheless still more elated when these actions annihilate their originator he shudders at the sufferings which will befall the hero and yet anticipates therein a higher and much more overpowering joy he sees more extensively and profoundly than ever and yet wishes to be blind whence must we derive this curious internal dissension this collapse of the apollonian apex if not from the dionysian spell which though apparently stimulating the apollonian emotions to their highest pitch can nevertheless force this superabundance of apollonian power into its service tragic myth is to be understood only as a symbolization of dionysian wisdom by means of the expedients of apollonian art the mythus conducts the world of phenomena to its boundaries where it denies itself and seeks to flee back again into the bosom of the true and only reality where it then like isolde 
seems to strike up its metaphysical swan song indes vana meris avogendem schwal in der duft vellen turnenden schal indes indes veltatems vehendem all er trinken versinken unbewusst herkste lust in the sea of pleasures billowing roll in the ether waves knelling and toll in the world breaths wavering whole to drown in go down in lost in swoon greatest boon we thus realize to ourselves and the experiences of the truly aesthetic hearer the tragic artist himself when he proceeds like a luxuriously fertile divinity of individuation to create his figures in which sense his work can hardly be understood as an imitation of nature and when on the other hand his vast dionysian impulse then absorbs the entire world of phenomena in order to anticipate beyond it and through its annihilation the highest artistic primal joy in the bosom of the primordial unity of course our aesthetes have nothing to say about this return in fraternal union of the two art deities to the original home nor of either the apollonian or dionysian excitement of the hearer while they are indefatigable in characterizing the struggle of the hero with fate the triumph of the moral order of the world or the disburdenment of the emotions through tragedy as the properly tragic an indefatigableness which makes me think that they are perhaps not aesthetically excitable men at all but only to be regarded as moral beings when hearing tragedy never since aristotle has an explanation of the tragic effect been proposed by which an aesthetic activity of the hearer could be inferred from artistic circumstances at one time fear and pity are supposed to be forced to an alleviating discharge through the serious procedure at another time we are expected to feel elevated and inspired at the triumph of good and noble principles at the sacrifice of the hero in the interest of a moral conception of things and however certainly i believe that for countless men precisely this and only this is the effect of tragedy it as obviously follows therefrom that all these together with their interpreting aesthetes have had no experience of tragedy as the highest art the pathological discharge the catharsis of aristotle which philologists are at a loss whether to include under medicinal or moral phenomena recalls a remarkable anticipation of goethe without a lively pathological interest he says i too have never yet succeeded in elaborating a tragic situation of any kind and hence i have rather avoided than sought it can it perhaps have been still another of the merits of the ancients that the deepest pathos was with them merely aesthetic play whereas with us the truth of nature must co-operate in order to produce such a work we can now answer in the affirmative this latter profound question after our glorious experiences in which we have found to our astonishment in the case of musical tragedy itself that the deepest pathos can in reality be merely aesthetic play and therefore we are justified in believing that now for the first time the proto-phenomenon of the tragic can be portrayed with some degree of success he who now will still persist in talking only of those vicarious effects proceeding from ultra-aesthetic spheres 
and does not feel himself raised above the pathologically moral process may be left to despair of his aesthetic nature for which we recommend to him by way of innocent equivalent the interpretation of shakespeare after the fashion of gervinus and the diligent search for poetic justice thus with the rebirth of tragedy the aesthetic hero is also born anew in whose place in the theatre a curious quid pro quo was wont to sit with half moral and half learned pretensions the critic in his sphere hitherto everything has been artificial and merely glossed over with a semblance of life the performing artist was in fact at a loss what to do with such a critically comporting hearer and hence he as well as the dramatist or operatic composer who inspired him searched anxiously for the last remains of life in a being so pretentiously barren and incapable of enjoyment such critics however have hitherto constituted the public the student the schoolboy yea even the most harmless womanly creature were already unwittingly prepared by education and by journals for a similar perception of works of art the nobler natures among the artists counted upon exciting the moral religious forces in such a public and the appeal to a moral order of the world operated vicariously when in reality some powerful artistic spell should have enraptured the true hearer or again some imposing or at all events exciting tendency of the contemporary political and social world was presented by the dramatist with such vividness that the hearer could forget his critical exhaustion and abandon himself to similar emotions as in patriotic or warlike moments before the tribune of parliament or at the condemnation of crime and vice an estrangement of the true aims of art which could not but lead directly now and then to a cult of tendency but here there took place what has always taken place in the case of factitious arts an extraordinary rapid deprivation of these tendencies so that for instance the tendency to employ the theatre as a means for the moral education of the people which in schiller's time was taken seriously is already reckoned among the incredible antiquities of a surmounted culture while the critic got the upper hand in the theatre and concert hall the journalist in the school and the press in society art degenerated into a topic of conversation of the most trivial kind and aesthetic criticism was used as the cement of a vain distracted selfish and moreover piteously unoriginal sociality the significance of which is suggested by the schopenhauerian parable of the porcupine so that there has never been so much gossip about art and so little esteem for it but is it still possible to have intercourse with a man capable of conversing on beethoven or shakespeare let each answer this question according to his sentiments he will at any rate show by his answer his conception of culture provided he tries at least to answer the question and has not already grown mute with astonishment on the other hand many a one more nobly and delicately endowed by nature though he may have gradually become a critical barbarian in the manner described could tell of the unexpected as well as totally unintelligible effect which a successful performance of lohengrin for example exerted on him except that perhaps every warning and interpreting hand was lacking to guide him so that the incomprehensibly heterogeneous and altogether incomparable sensation which then affected him also remained isolated and became extinct like a mysterious star after a brief brilliancy he then divined what the aesthetic here is End of chapter twenty two